Hello, this is Larry Dobrow, Editor-in-Chief of MMM, and I'm extremely excited to be a part of this episode of the Agency 100 Storycast, Storycast, a new podcast series which gives members of the MMM Agency 100 list an opportunity to discuss exactly what sets them apart. I'm thrilled to get the opportunity to do this with our good friends from Abelson Taylor. Today, we'll be here with Erica Rivera, who is the VP and Director of Engagement Strategy, and Lisa Shangari, who is the Senior Director of Engagement Strategy. Lisa and Erica, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. We're happy to be here. Thank you for having us. For this conversation, we're going to be talking a little bit about working in and living with rare disease. Um, It's a category that Everybody tries to do. A lot of people say they do it well. I don't think that many people actually do it well, but Abelson Taylor is certainly one of the ones. So that's what we'll be talking about. And I guess the best place to start is really with your experience within rare disease. Erica, um, tell us a little bit about yours. Absolutely. Before I start with myself, I'll actually share a little about Abelson Taylor and our background, because although I've only been with Abelson Taylor for seven years, we've been doing rare disease here at the agency since 1993. So we actually have a really strong history of that with the original launch of Lupron Depot PED for precocious precocious puberty. So important to note that we have a long history and in fact, actually have worked on the first rare disease billion dollar brand Solaris. We've worked on over 40 brands here at AT that are rare disease. And my involvement has been with some of the really unique and fun experiences that we've put together for these populations, including just a couple of years ago, the first ever hackathon for hemophilia, which was an absolutely amazing and exhausting weekend in Cambridge, Massachusetts to bring together our clients, CSL Bearing, the National Hemophilia Foundation, and then MIT Hacking Medicine to say, we need something new and different for this population. Personally, I've been at AT for seven years. I have over a decade in rare disease, and I come back to it over and over because I am a natural born storyteller and stories need to be told and there are voices that need to be amplified. That volume needs to be turned way up on rare disease. I think there's huge value in us looking at rare disease as kind of a larger number, 7,000 rare diseases and, and pieces like that. But we have to look at the individual rare disease and working on brands um, at the agency really allows me to do that. Lisa, how about you? Tell me a little bit about your experience. I've been with AT about two years now, and I've been in healthcare a total of 28. So my background's been pretty diverse in many therapeutic areas, but my most recent experience in rare disease is that I'm a caregiver to my 16-year-old son, Alex, who was diagnosed about five years ago with primary sclerosing cholangitis. So rare disease to me is very, very personal, and I apply this to the work that I do every day and the brands that I work on. It's important for me to make sure that I understand the journey that the patients and caregivers go through, because that helps me also know where I can go to find information and resources and tools. And, you know, early in my career, I was able and fortunate to work on as a client of Ableton Taylor's on precocious puberty. So it kind of all has come full circle for me, and I'm excited to talk about rare. All right. To that end, um, Lisa, why don't you get us started with this? Um, talk about rare disease using a couple of descriptive phrases, a couple of phrases that kind of stand out at you, stand out for you, excuse me, given your experience within the uh, sector and also as a caregiver. My uh, statements would be be curious, 
ask questions and never stop pushing for an answer. So as a mom of a child with a rare disease and working in this space, I knew that it was important to keep pushing when I knew something wasn't wasn't right. Like we knew something wasn't right. So kept asking those hard questions and it took a long time to get to a diagnosis. But what I find exciting is that I kept asking those questions as a marketer that we always tell our patients, you need to talk to your doctor about. So I knew to keep, keep advocating and keep pushing forward. Erica, how about yours? What are some of the phrases that jump out at you? I think I would probably use descriptive words. I would say that Working in the rare disease space is absolutely hopeful, even on the hardest of days, even on the hardest of um, disease states or conditions that we're working in. It's hopeful because if we're bringing a brand to patients and caregivers, it means there's some hope on the horizon. It's inspiring. I mean, we all work crazy jobs and crazy lives, but to be able to come in and feel like what you're doing today is going to make a difference to someone in the near future. It's inspiring. It gives me those goosebumps to think about someone seeing something that we've put together for the first time. But the number one word I would use is probably stamina. Watching the endurance of a family or a mother or a patient dealing with a rare disease where, first of all, something's wrong and I don't know what it is. And that idea that it's seven to 10 years to a diagnosis. I mean, the stamina is an it's, it's incredible to watch what, what people go through and how every day they get back up and they continue to go again. And I feel like our job is to make sure that we're creating things for brands, experiences for these brands that allow people to get a little bit further. Maybe on, for one day you can set your pack down a little bit and someone else will run it forward for you. Um, and the brand can help with that and can, can kind of give you that second wind beneath your wings. So I'm always impressed by the flat-out endurance that happens with families with rare disease. Certainly a part of the work that Abelson Taylor does with rare disease brands is digging for insights. Um, tell me a little bit about that process. Um, how important is it that first, I don't know if you want to call it a burst of research or maybe that first wave of research? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question because I think you know, when we talk rare disease and when we're talking right now, we're talking about so many different rare diseases. It's kind of this umbrella, right? What we need to do with the research is really get underneath that umbrella and get underneath that little piece a little bit more to make sure that we can actually see in that space. So I feel like we're making sure that we're looking at the truth of the overall experience and the challenges that may be very specific for a particular rare disease state or family. And the devil really is in the details. Uh, we need to make sure that we understand what a community needs or what a family really needs and not just assume that we've done work in rare disease. So therefore, it applies to this new disease state that we're working on. And I just would echo like taking those insights and understanding each of the journeys helps me understand how we can reach them with our messages and our campaigns and really how to interact with them. And one of the rare diseases that I worked on, the insight from research said, you know, parents need a story to be able to explain the condition to their child. So it was a way that we were able to take that and build a storybook and a doll that went together with the story so that they understood what precocious puberty was. And we developed tools and resources that the parents had as well as the child so they could understand their condition that was really child-friendly. Right. Um, we've talked a little bit about how insights inform pretty much everything that's done in a lot of these campaigns. Tell me a little bit about some of the players, how do advocacy groups and pharma work together with Abelson Taylor to 
most effectively support patients, to support caregivers, to support uh, physicians about um, medications they might not be aware of? That's a good question. I think that one of the things that's really important to me to think about as a marketer is that this advocacy groups or the advocacy organizations, those entities are critical to the families, to the patients, to the caregivers, that for many, that's their first touch point with a community that is experiencing something similar to themselves. And so giving credence or value to how impactful an advocacy group, whether it's a local chapter or a larger national organization is, is just so important. I think about the advocacy as like that blanket that wraps around the entire community and says, I have you. I have you when it's scary. I have you when it's thundering. I have you when you're having fun on the lawn and I wrap around you, you know, advocacy is really critical and how a brand really interacts with that, I think is important or particularly how pharma companies do. And I think that you, we see the sponsorships and we see the financial obligation, but where pharma can kind of step in and our brands can step in a little more is say, we're hearing something through your populations or through your communities that we'd like to partner with you on and your authenticity and elevate that and make it very specific to what your patients are looking for. Um, so often I think patients or families don't really know exactly how to ask for specifically what they need. They can vocalize the problems that they're dealing with, but the solution is a little bit hidden and a little bit fuzzy. And brands can deliver that through that partnership with advocacy who understands everything about them. And they can have that truer sense of a relationship. Um, beyond R&D and beyond our, all of that, when you bring that brand to life, the more that a particular brand beyond just the corporate entity can partner with advocacy, I think the better off you can really kind of give that sense of control to a family. Yeah, and I would, you know, Rare it can really learn from non-Rare in this instance. So, you know, many of them, of the advocacy groups are condition specific. So I think about my work that I've done in mental health, like you can partner with, you know, organizations like NAMI and GI, you could partner with Crohn's and colitis and diabetes, American Diabetes Association. So looking at those as models, if you will, Rare can really learn from that and, and find those advocacy groups and partner with them early really gives them that jump start so that when they are ready to go on to market or, you know, if it's early in development, that they're prepared. We talked a little bit about community over the course of that answer. I think one of the things that is you know, probably very scary within rare disease is the sense of isolation. How can you combat that? What are some of the things that can be done, whether it is allying with some of the communities mentioned or anything else to, uh, to mitigate that sense of isolation? I could talk about it from a caregiver perspective. You know, I, I searched out a community. I was looking for community when we got our diagnosis. And let me tell you, communities are not a one size fits all approach. I, I found a community and researched it and I thought, okay, this, this is a, a community I can be a part of. But then I really found that in the condition, most of the people in that group were adults who were end-stage disease, which wasn't where we were on our journey. And I was really looking for other caregivers, like, you know, what, what do you tell your child? What do you, you know, how do you explain this to them? So I did find a group and um, it's a pediatric caregiver group on Facebook. And in that community, we share here's clinical trials that are going on and this is where they're enrolling and here's the locations. So one community doesn't necessarily mean it's the right fit for everyone. And so I take that into the day-to-day -day work that I do and think about that isolation, like, 
if it's a rare condition that there's not a community for yet, like what are their needs? What do they do? Because the message could be very different from a patient to a caregiver. And that's really, really important in the support that they need. Right. In terms of, I, you know, this is not to ask anybody to critique any clients or anything like that, but within pharma, what are some of the things that companies can learn or maybe they don't know as well as they could know about working in the rare disease space? You know, what are some of the things that Abelson Taylor is attempting to kind of nudge in their direction to uh, maybe get a little more response from them? So I think pushing ourselves to have truly measurable results that ladder back to the business objectives and rare disease is critical. I think sometimes the populations feel very small and it's hard to know if you're hitting in the right spots, but when we can line those strategic imperatives up to the business objective specifically for the brand and then measure to that and then say, we're going to optimize our ecosystem. We're going to optimize our ecosystem as soon as we possibly can to kind of really hone in on that. That's something that uh, rare disease can look at and do a little bit better. The biggest reason that I see behind that is because, well, we just don't have a lot of budget. So let's pick an area we're going to play in. And so we just say, this is what we're doing. And then we go over that area without thinking holistically, how can we make sure that we're driving truly measurable results and then adjusting and shifting as that happens? I think that's one of the places where we can really press in a little bit harder. Erica, when you have that conversation, are clients receptive? Are they sometimes a little defensive? So I don't think that they're defensive, but I think sometimes when we put out an opportunity or a channel that doesn't feel familiar, it feels like, is this is this going to be uncomfortable for us? Meaning, are we ready to support that? Maybe we're talking about something in the social media space where we're not sure if we want to partner with influencers yet. We're not sure how we want to deal with AEs being reported. It feels like, hey, guys, I only have this much budget and it only goes this far. So I feel like you just asked me to take 20 percent of my budget and put it in a place where I don't feel like that's safe. And the argument or the uh, case, the rationale we would make for it is if we know that that space is already busy with this conversation, you need to be there in order to make sure that you're getting in front of the right folks. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I recently made sure, so I make sure that we always have, uh, from a social media perspective, that I'm always following the disease states, the advocacy, the national groups, the hashtags associated with that. I follow rare disease. On TikTok, I can open up my TikTok right now. And while I'm absolutely served recipes and other things that are lifestyle related, <laughs> I see rare disease content. I see the specific disease states that I work in. I see influencers and content creators every single day because it took one time for me to ask TikTok to serve me that information. And six months later, it's like, you know, Erica really cares about this very specific disease. And so I see that content. And so for a and it's like, oh, do we need to do this thing? And it's like, for folks that care, they will see this information. And that's how you get right in front of your right population, especially when you're talking about the patient subset. Of that content, um, this is a little bit off topic, but um, what, what's some of the content that both of you are seeing that you're impressed by, that you're inspired by, that you say, hey, this is ingenious. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about some good examples of some of the content you just alluded to. Sometimes like what I see is, how to apply a product or what their experience using the product is kind of like a review, if you will, in a quick snippet. And it's amazing always to me, like how many people are then following or commenting on that. So that's kind of what I'm seeing. 
Agree with that. I would say that one of the things that I see that is so interesting is a content creator that will understand how the platform works, meaning get in, get out. If it's quick, you need to be a hard hitting. There is nothing worse than a long setup on a YouTube video. And so when we're building for brands, we even if, you know, we've got an influencer that we're partnering with or we have a brand ambassador, we have to build that content for the place it's going to be, not just that it's an instructional video for how to use a product. And so custom fitting that to where we want to share that information is critically important. And it's just so nice to see it authentic to the platform it's going to be served on. And it doesn't look like it's trying to be a cross-channel communication that feels like an email, but landed on YouTube. <laughs> the, the the content that we're discussing, historically, you've got, you know, pharma has always been kind of a one-size-fits-all um, type situation. I'm not sure brand teams, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago really understood that if something is made for one platform and it's plastered onto another, it's going to look like it was made for one platform and plastered onto another. Um, how do you have that conversation with them to make sure that everything is specific to the um, platform that it's going to be uh, channeled on? It's a really good question that requires us to make sure that we are strategically planning appropriately and that corners at the upfront where we're planning for the full ecosystem that we're going to be delivering against where we think we might be optimizing into an ecosystem, that we do all of that planning early enough so then when it's time to not just build the campaign, shoot the campaign, but concept the campaign, we can make sure that we're building for that. So we build it in early. It's conversations that are had at the beginning of a relationship with the agency, with the creative team, with the clients to help them see the vision. And sometimes that means we have to walk them through where we've been successful before. Sometimes it means we have to walk them through where a shortcut was taken. And then that shortcut felt like a good decision right now. But six, nine months later, it meant that we were not really putting the ideal content into the right platform and it didn't perform as well. So um, it is really a strategic conversation that says we know how to plan for it. Uh, We just need to make sure that we don't rush those early conversations. And, the you know, Lisa and I both work so heavily in the development of the channel ecosystem. Um, It is our holy grail for a reason. And part of it, too, is educating the creative team up front. Right. So. You, we go in and we'll say, okay, this audience is, this is where they're at. They're on Instagram, they're on TikTok. So we need to think about when we present concepts, we need to show them concepts that are kind of over all different platforms. It's just not a traditional flat storyboard anymore. It's what does that campaign look like across all of the different channels? Lisa, I have a question that's specific to you, you know, given your uh, situation as a caregiver. Do you hear anything universally from patients or families that you think pharma marketers and brand leads really need to know? Maybe something that they've either been overlooking or just haven't, you know, haven't kind of focused on yet. I think what's really important is the listening. You need to listen to them. And if that's either through social listening or patient ad boards or advocacy groups, that's where you're going to gather those insights that really speak to them. And that's when you can then partner with those organizations to make sure that what you're creating resonates with them, resonates with the audience. And that really will get them to engage as you go to build out your program or your product. I have one last question. I'd love to get both of your responses on it. It's kind of the, uh, it's kind of the crystal ball question. What does the future of innovation look like for pharma marketing through the lens of rare disease? Um, Where are we going to be a year from now? Where are we going to be five years from now? 
I would say that we are going to be reframing what innovation looks like. I think that when we think innovation uh, and when we think what the future looks like, we sometimes head directly into a technology space. Uh, we start talking about the AIs and the virtual and all of that. And I think that in the rare disease space, it is critically important that we don't just chase fancy tech in order to have something that wins an award, but provides inconvenience and dissatisfaction for a patient. And the way that I would say that is to think that I always think about the moms that I see that are talking about the challenges that they have when they have young children with a rare disease or a patient that's in the middle of their life with their own children trying to deal with their uh, rare condition. They're living life. They're working every day. They're working probably on a short staff team where they've got folks that they need to do extra things. They've got to make dinner, but I forgot to go to the grocery store. But we need to set up interactions and innovations to put their experience with their disease state or with their condition and their brand in a way that just infiltrates that life. Um, it's not a new platform and it's not a new tech. It's how can you be in the middle of a conversation over homework or getting to soccer practice and still be able to have your treatment handled in such a way that it feels seamless and part of who you are versus this extra asterisk sitting over here that's a burden. We need to innovate to incorporate ourselves into that space versus let's give you this thing that you'll learn how to do and then it'll be great for you. And nobody really has time to learn anything more or do anything more than we're already doing. Lisa, from Matt, your perspective, I'd love to hear the same uh, same answer. Yeah, so I'm gonna take a little bit different approach here. There are so many rare diseases that are not even being studied or researched. So we've seen a lot of advancement in R&D in rare disease but it still needs to be progressed forward in my opinion. So I have to keep advocating, right? And where I see the innovation is really gonna come is with that partnership between R&D and commercial so that as products are developed, that they're truly ultimately benefiting the patient in the end. So it's, it's really establishing that early commercial and R&D relationship. I know I said last question, but I lied. Um, our Lisa, Erica, are, are you optimistic? Some of the things that we talked about, some of the changes, some of the things that are going well, but also some of the things that you'd like to see more of. Are you optimistic we're going to see them, that clients are going to come with Abelson-Taylor on that ride? I am. Um, I'll go back to me saying that the words that uh, resonate for me with rare disease are hopeful and stamina. And I think mm -hmm. between those two things, you can really conquer the world. And I will even say that, you know, two years of the pandemic taught general population, what it can be like to deal with what feels like a chronic disease or invisible illness, uh, which very often fits underneath rare disease. And I feel like we actually had an opportunity where general population kind of felt some of that cutoffness and some of that struggle. And so it's something more available to us now to say, remember that time when you couldn't do something. And now we have personal experiences that I think kind of shine that light forward. But I will always bet on a rare disease family to be a champion always because I've never seen um, as much just flat out tenacity as this entire group of people has. So I'll always be hopeful that we can achieve more. Lisa? I too am hopeful. I'm excited for some of the stuff that's going to be coming out and just knowing that there's there's some game changers and movers and shakers that are going to happen in the, with innovation that I think will definitely impact rare. And so I'm just 
super excited that we get to be part of it as Ableton Taylor and that I get to experience it as well. So I'm very excited. Lisa, Erica, thank you so much for joining uh, me with this one. You know, a bunch of the conversations we have have not been as inspiring, I think is the best way to put it as this one. So many thanks for sharing both of your experiences. Thank you. Yeah.